The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, hey, good morning, Fathom Church. Happy Easter to you. Uh, Goodness, this is most certainly uh, an Easter unlike any before in church history and probably uh, any following it. So uh, glad you're here. Glad you're with us. Happy Easter. If I have yet to meet you, my name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fathom. uh, And and I'm just so excited to to spend a little bit of time together this morning, this Easter Sunday uh, with you. So if you would please grab a hold of your Bibles. I hope you have your own Bible. If you do, grab it and let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. If you do not have a Bible, uh, you can open up a phone or a tablet uh, and uh, legitimately you can Google search 1 Corinthians 15, and, and you will be brought to uh, to a, a, a Bible there. Uh, we are reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, that's where we'll be today. I really do want you to see uh, what we're in today, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this is going to be a little bit different as far as Easter's go, obviously, because I'm in a room by myself. You're somewhere, maybe in your living room or in your family room or in your bedroom, whatever that might be. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different, but what's going to be normal about this day is that it's Easter, and that means that we're going to be talking about the resurrection. That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, it's, o- it's only one of two weeks where I feel like I absolutely have to preach on a specific topic, right? So like Christmas, you, you come on Christmas, you, you better hear about the birth of Jesus. And today, Easter Sunday, I have to cover the resurrection. It's just like, you have to do that. Um, and luckily, we are right in the middle of a sermon series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 15 is actually one of the most comprehensive treatments on the resurrection in the entire New Testament. So, we're going to dig into this. Let's start uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're actually going to start in verse 3, go to verse 11, and then we will jump back and kind of circle back to verses 1 and 2 at the end. So 1 Corinthians uh, 15, starting in verse 3. Here's what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now stop right there in the middle of the verse, okay? The Apostle Paul is the guy who wrote this letter. We call it a book, but it's really a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Corinth, which is a Greek city in the Roman Empire. And and, and Paul is also the author of almost half, actually more than half of our New Testament in our Bibles. So this is like a this guy's kind of a hoss. I mean, he's pretty legit when it comes to the Bible. Like if there's an important guy second in line to maybe Jesus in this whole Christian thing, the apostle Paul's got to fit right in that argument. And, 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 and so Paul, he wrote a ton of different things, but, but what he just said is that he is about to give us what is most important. He said things of first importance, which means, which means that we can disagree on a whole slew of stuff. Okay, like we can disagree on tons of different things. We can disagree on over things uh, inside the church, okay? So should we baptize infants or should we baptize believers? We can disagree on that, okay? Uh, should we use grape juice or should we use wine in communion? Yeah, we can 
We can make some arguments on both sides. Should we sing contemporary worship songs or historical hymns? These are things that we can disagree on. Okay, we could disagree over uh, theological topics. Really, we could. Is, is it predestination or is it free will? Well, we could disagree on that. Is it divine sovereignty or is it personal responsibility? How, we, we could disagree over how the end times work, eschatology. We could do that. We could even disagree over some ethical issues. Okay, uh, sh- should Christians side one way or the other politically? Should Christians watch certain shows or movies, listen to certain music, intake certain forms of multimedia? Or should Christians drink alcohol? We could disagree on that. I actually know a pastor who says that, that drinking beer is fine, but that drinking light beer is sinful. So yeah, you, you just take that as you will. But you see, all these things, all these things can be discussed and debated and, and, and some are actually important and some are less important. But, but Paul is saying here that, that he's about to give us what is of first importance. We can get everything else right. Everything else. We can get every secondary or tertiary issue correct. But if we get what is of first importance wrong, well, we're in a big heap of trouble. So let's see. Let's let's look again at verse three. Let's see what Paul is saying is of first importance. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's what, that's it right there. Those two verses, there you have it. What is of first importance? Well, Paul just gave you a summation of the entire gospel message, the good news about Jesus Christ. These are the things that are of first importance. Jesus Christ was Uh, Jesus Christ died for our sins. We talked about that on Friday. He was buried and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. So now listen to me. Those three things, Jesus died, he was buried and he rose. Those three things, if you do not believe that those three things are true, you are not a Christian, okay? Okay. Now, I know that might frustrate some of you, but like if you boil it all down, those are of first importance. So let's go through them real quick, okay? Uh, Jesus died for your sins. We call this the atonement, okay? And it is a central tenant of the Christian faith. Christ died on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. He carried away the shame of mankind. He opened a way of reconciliation between man and God. He did all of that. This, the importance of Jesus' death on the cross cannot be overstated. Jesus died. But then Jesus was buried. Now, th- this little phrase is here to reinforce that he actually died, okay? Jesus was buried. There have been numerous theories over the last two millennia uh, trying to attempt to deny 
that, that, that Jesus actually physically died, but rather that he passed out or like somehow survived the cross. Uh, the problem with that is that the Romans, uh, the Roman uh, empire, the Romans were experts when it came to crucifixion. Okay. They knew how to kill people. And doing crucifixion was uh, one of their main methods of execution, especially for the least and the criminals and, and those who they, they felt were the, the, the very bottom rung of society. And the Roman Empire pronounced him dead. Okay, they did that. They pierced his side with a spear up under his ribs and blood and water came out. They uh, made sure, they double checked as if crucifixion wasn't enough. They stabbed him to make sure that he was dead. He actually physically died and was buried. But then why we're here today celebrating on Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday is the third part. Jesus was raised on the third day. And if there are two movements of this kind of first important stuff, it's, it's the cross and it's the resurrection. It's the death and it's the resurrection of Jesus. These ideas are inseparably linked to one another and all Christians believe these things, that, that, that God raised Jesus from the grave on the third day. But, but I think the third one is the hardest one to kind of swallow, at least uh, on surface level, right? De death, okay, I get it. Jesus died. He was buried. Okay, I'm following you on that. But then he rose from the dead. Now, now, now wait a second. That just don't happen every day. So let's talk about this, okay? Paul doesn't just leave us hanging here. He doesn't just leave us hanging with this whole resurrection thing and just say, hey, Jesus rose from the, the grave. Just trust me. Just trust me on that. That's, that's not his argument. Rather, Paul cites three sources of authority to, to, to back the claim that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. So he, he, he points to three sources. The first source, and he just said this in our passage, the first source that he said twice was that this was in accordance with the scriptures. Now, um, Paul does not have a specific verse in mind. It's not like he's citing one verse in the Bible at this point, but what he's referring to is the entire Hebrew Bible, uh, which in our Bibles is called the Old Testament. This is the Hebrew scriptures, okay? And he's bringing up the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, um, statisticians, people who are way better with numbers. I'm, I'm okay with words. I am not great with numbers. Um, but statisticians and mathematicians and all of them, they've done work to try to figure out the statistical chance that, that, that one man would fulfill all the Old Testament messianic prophecies, which some have numbered in the hundreds, okay? Uh, and, and so here's, they, they came up with this illustration to help us get our heads around this. Um, the chances of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, not all of them, but just eight of them. Uh, I found a statistician who said it would be like filling the entire state of Texas, which is you know, decently large. Everything's bigger in Texas. They think it's pretty big. It's pretty good. Okay. Uh, but, but they said it would be like filling every single square inch of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep. 
Okay, so imagine that. And then marking one of those silver dollars with a Sharpie or something like that, throwing that in the mess somewhere in Texas and then sending in somebody blindfolded to dig around and find the correct coin. Their, their whole, whole point there is that this is like almost impossible. I mean, it's like so small are the odds that one man would fulfill all of those prophecies. And that's just eight of them. I mean, can you imagine the chances of him fulfilling all the prophecies in the scriptures? So Paul says, hey, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of the scriptures, of the holy book, okay? This is the first source of authority that Paul points to. But just in case that doesn't get you over the hump, he points to a second. And we see it in verse 6. So 1 Corinthians verse 6, this is what uh, Paul says. Then he, and he's talking of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for some have died. Some have passed away. And so Paul, he pointed first to the authority of the scriptures to kind of back this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. But then he pointed to the authority of some eyewitnesses, not just some, 500 or more eyewitnesses. He said that Jesus appeared to them, more than 500 of them, all at once. So, and then he goes on to say, most of those guys and gals are still alive. He's like, hey, don't take my word for it. Go ask some crew. Like, go ask some people, all right? Most of them are still alive. There's a bunch of eyewitnesses that are still alive that will attest that they saw Jesus after he died and after he rose. And and there's consensus amongst uh, biblical historians, both Christian and secular, which almost never happens, consensus among scholars, okay? But uh, there is consensus. Almost every scholar agrees that 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Okay, and that it was written certainly when there were eyewitnesses still alive that would have been able to discount or discredit this message. And here's what you don't do. If you're the Apostle Paul, you don't say, hey, go check with hundreds of other people who witnessed this thing. If there's a chance that they're going to check, that they, they would actually go check with those people and they would deny your claims. If you were making it up, you would never send people to go see those witnesses. So he defaults first to the authority of the scriptures. He, he then uh, checks the authority of these eyewitnesses. And then one more, okay? That now, now we're going to backtrack to verse five, and then we're going to skip verse six because we just read it, and then go seven to the end, seven to 11, okay? So 1 Corinthians 15, verse five. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, verse seven. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. The, the third source of authority that Paul points to 
it is to the apostles. It's to the, the spiritual authorities within this new movement of Christianity, the, the, the spiritual experts around this way of following Jesus. And so this was like saying, hey, you don't believe the scriptures? Okay. You, you don't think that the, the, the hordes of witnesses give some credibility to this claim? Fine. Uh, what about the experts? Like, what about the leaders? Like, what about the ones who, who know this stuff inside and out? Those who walked with Jesus, because they all agree about this resurrection thing as well. And, and there are three that are kind of the most compelling witnesses to me that he mentions. He men, uh, Paul mentions Cephas. I said, that's Peter. That's Peter's other name. Uh, so, so Cephas or Peter, James is the second name mentioned. And then Paul talks about himself. So those three guys, real quick. Peter, Cephas, Peter, Peter was just like, if you read the gospels, he was just up and down during the three years he followed Christ. Guy was kind of all over the place. He had this like one really brilliant moment where he confessed Jesus as the Messiah. It was a, it was a spectacular moment. Only four verses later, Jesus calls him the devil. All right. Like, so, so when Jesus calls you the, the devil, it calls into question your credibility a bit on the subject. Okay. But, but Peter, he all through the, the gospels, he talks a big game and is never seemingly able to follow through on it. In fact, at the last supper, which you might know the art or, or you might know uh, that we're kind of celebrating that week right now at the last supper. Okay. He told Peter told Jesus that he would never, that he would never betray him, that he would actually die before he even betrayed Jesus. And then later that night, all right, he denies knowing Jesus three times. Before the next morning, he does that three times. He goes back on what he says. Here's the question. What possibly could have happened that would turn this frightened, arrogant man into a primary kind of main player in the early church, who in the end is, is no longer afraid, but he who preaches with power, he leads with authority, and even at the end of his life allows himself to be crucified, but doesn't feel like it's, he's worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So he asks to be crucified upside down, which I don't even know what that means, but that's crazy. What could have changed this man? He believed in the resurrection. He saw the risen Christ and believed. And it changed everything about him. Now, second guy is a guy named James. Now, James uh, is one of two half-brothers of Jesus that we know about from the scriptures, James and Jude. Uh, and I say half-brother, he's his half-brother because Joseph and Mary had more children after Jesus was born. So Jesus is like the big brother and James is like the younger brother. And, and there was a time during Jesus' life in the gospel of Mark chapter three, where his mother and his brothers approached him and they legitimately thought that Jesus was out of his mind that he was crazy, that he was off his rocker, okay? But, but after Jesus' death, James goes on to worship Jesus as God, as Lord. James goes on to worship his own older brother. He becomes the main leader for the church in Jerusalem. He dies a martyr's death and he never recounts the, the fact that the uh, recants, the fact that his brother was the Messiah. So question, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was a God? 
Like what would it take for you to believe that your brother or sister was sinless, perfect, divine, Messiah? Like I've got a brother. I have a younger brother. So what, you know, maybe I try and convince him that I'm God, but uh, I have a brother. I'll tell you what, um, it would take an awful lot for me to start worshiping the Lord Matthew Martin. It would take an awful lot. Like it would, he would literally, he would literally have to be murdered. I would have to witness that he was truly dead. And then he would have to come back from that death. And I would have to witness that. And then I might consider to believe that he was in fact divine. Although I'm pretty sure I would try and convince myself that something else had happened, right? That James believed in the resurrection is astounding. It's astounding. And then finally, Paul brings himself up. He talks about himself. He says that he was the least of the apostles. He, he persecuted the church. He had a hand in killing, murdering Christians until Jesus got a hold of his heart. And listen, this was not a good move for Paul's career. It's not like he was doing poorly. And now that he become a, became a Christian, everything started going well for him. In fact, everything went poorly for him after he became a Christian. He was on the up and up, the upper echelon of the Jewish society. And yet he changed the course of his entire life upon being convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. See, Paul, he, he says the things of first importance, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they can be confirmed by the authority of the scriptures, by, by the authority of hundreds of witnesses and the authority of the spiritual experts of their day. So then what does that mean for us? Okay, 2000 years Later, Well, this is where I want us to go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is writing all of these things to remind his church, the church in Corinth, of their belief. And he does this in three ways, three ways, okay? First, he says, I remind you of the gospel which you received. That's what he said. The gospel which you received, that's a past tense verb, right? So there's a moment, a moment in time when each one must receive the gospel, the, the gospel, the good news, the death and resurrection of Jesus. They have to receive that as true. So I was 16 years old when I first believed in the gospel. Okay, that was a past event in my life of belief. So for you, maybe it was when you were five, maybe it was when you were 45, maybe it was when you were 75, okay? But, but there was a moment where you received the gospel and for the first time you believed that Jesus died and rose for you. But, but I fear 
that, that far too many people who receive the gospel back as like this event, this one-time event, that, that, that they think that because of that event, it has assured them that they are saved. See, much of evangelical church world uh, is so obsessed with this decision-oriented, conversion-focused Christianity. And listen, that event matters. Paul talks about that event, but Paul doesn't simply leave the gospel, this belief in the gospel as a past event. No, he goes on. He says, the gospel, which you receive in the past, in which you stand. Now that's present tense. If we can remember this high school grammar stuff, the past tense, which you believe, which you received and the present tense in which you stand your belief in the gospel. It began at a point, but the proof then that you made that decision is the position that you're in now. It's where you stand today. So goodness, I meet so many people who have at one point in their life believed in the gospel. Maybe it was as a child, as a, as a teenager, right? They, they went to a VBS, a vacation Bible school, or they went to like a youth camp or something like that. And they had some sort of experience which led them to believe the gospel. Maybe they even got baptized, all right? Uh, but, but, but then over the course of time, they just kind of drift away, and Paul is reminding the Christians at Corinth who had legitimately drifted away from faithfully following Christ that this isn't just about some event in the past, but that belief in the gospel is an ongoing and present reality. So listen here, the difference between saving faith and superficial faith has nothing to do with the intensity of the emotion that you have at the beginning, but it has everything to do with its duration over time. So Paul talks about the past, talks about the present, but then Paul gives a third reminder. He says, I preach the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So on the third part, Paul uses this Greek tense, which refers to both kind of this present ongoing process and a future reality that we're moving into. So the best way I could sum it up, it's like Paul is saying this, you were saved, you are saved, and you are being saved. I hope you're seeing this church, but, but salvation, belief in the gospel it's this ongoing process. It's, it's progressive. And Paul adds a little warning at the end of verse two, okay? He adds this if. He says, you are being saved if you hold fast. And then he throws this last little category of vain belief in there. And his point is that we must hold fast to our belief in the gospel until the end, or it's in vain, or that belief is in vain. I know I'm making my point again, but faith that fades, no matter how luscious its first fruits were, is not saving faith. 
So listen to me, praying a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart is an important step, but even if it's followed with an emotional flurry and religious fervor, it is no proof that you are saved. Saving faith is enduring faith. And that's what he says. He delivers to us of first importance, what he also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I'm summing it all up like this. Jesus died and rose for you. He died and rose for you. The scriptures point to this truth. The witnesses corroborated this truth and the spiritual experts proclaimed this truth. And I know many of you who are watching this right now, you believe this, but some of you don't. Maybe you did. Okay. Maybe you did at one point. Maybe my illustrations have made sense to you. You you did at one point, but you've drifted. And maybe you never believed in the first point. I mean, maybe you've just never believed, like you've never received Christ. So I just want to proclaim the same message of importance that Paul is proclaiming 2,000 years ago. Jesus died and rose for you. And listen, if Jesus died for your sins, then he is for you. Like anybody who dies for you is for you. What you believe about the death and the resurrection of Jesus are the most important things you believe. They are of first importance. Beer or no beer, like we can talk later over a beer, okay? Predestination or free will? Goodness, we'll handle that another time. Is it okay for Christians to watch the Tiger King? Well, listen, that show is messed up, all right? So nobody should watch that thing. But listen, that all of those things are secondary, tertiary. They don't even matter in the grand scheme of things at, at times. But, but today, this Easter Sunday, while we're all quarantined away from each other, I proclaim to you that the only thing that matters is that Christ was crucified for the redemption of sinners. He was buried in the ground because he actually physically died and that God the Father brought him back to life on the third day and that same power is available to everyone who believes. And if you aren't a Christian, I just want to offer what's on the table. Jesus died and rose for you. Won't you believe that? He is for you. Won't you finally say yes to him as Lord and Savior? I mean, I don't know uh, really anything about what God is doing in the midst of this COVID-19 stuff, but maybe one, maybe just one of the purposes behind why all this might be happening is so that you would be wherever you are tuning into this, this, this screen right now to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, won't you, won't you put your stake in the ground and believe in him today? Listen, if you do say yes to Jesus, it will change everything. It changed Peter from a a coward, arrogant fool and 
And it changed Paul from a murdering, vicious Christian hater. And it turned James from maybe a a, a jealous, conniving younger brother. And it can change you. And listen, if you do believe in Jesus today, would you just let me know? Like if the tech is all working and I'm not convinced that it's all going to work, but if the tech is working, there should be a button on your screen that says that you committed your life to Jesus. Would you just click that? Let us know. Let the staff, let the elders know. You can email us. You can fill out that connect card that we talked about. I mean, goodness, we just want to be able to follow up with you this week. We want to celebrate that that, that Jesus is, is now your Lord and your Savior. And we want to help you with whatever next steps are to come. And listen, if you do believe, whether you believe today for the first time or you have been called back to to believe today or whether you've always believed and you continue to believe, here's the truth. For you, there will be no condemnation. There will be no judgment. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Not isolation, not, not quarantine, okay, not a virus, not fear, not anxiety, not depression, not even death. When death is all around us, today we remember that there was one who was victorious over death and that death has been killed. We put, Jesus put death in his grave. He is for you. And this can most clearly be seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I am uh, encouraged. Um, I'm sad this morning that I don't get to be with my church physically. I want that's, I want to be and see and hug and high five and shake hands and see. But, but, but in this moment, Lord, I'm thankful that we have the common grace of cameras and the internet and streaming to be able to celebrate what is of first importance, the resurrection of Jesus. I do pray, Lord, that even if there are some who have been hesitant to click that button to, 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 to acknowledge and to submit their lives to you, Lord, would you even as we speak through the Holy Spirit, call men and women and students and children to yourself. God, we bless you for you raised your son from the grave, that death is no longer the final word, but it's actually the beginning of the eternal word. And so Father, use uh, this this time in our text, use our coming response and worship to, to deepen us into your love. Lord, we love you. We bless you this Resurrection Sunday in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.